Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. I'm your host, the Nefriensian. Before we get rolling with this week's episode, a couple of quick favors to ask. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share with your friends. Also, if you're on Instagram, give us a follow at Bootstraps Podcast. So, y'all, I'm really excited to uh, share this week's episode with you. You know, it's not every week that you get to sit down and have a conversation with someone who's changing the face of public education and increasing the outcomes for, for underserved communities. But it's even more special to me when that person happens to be your oldest brother. I find this week's guest to be one of the greatest minds I've ever been around in any circle. And uh, when we tend to get together and talk, we, we, off, we often get lost in the conversation. And that's definitely something that happened in this particular episode. So much so that I have to break it into two parts. Because when I listened through, I felt like all of the information needed to get out into the world. And it really had a natural break in it. So part one is really going to focus on his philosophies as an educator and how he was molded as a man um, through his childhood and his upbringing that really informed his philosophies. And then in part two, we get deeper into the educational policies and the way in which he was able to come up with and design systems and then implement those systems to deliver outcomes that increased the educational performance of kids in public schools in the most underserved communities out there. So I think both parts add a lot of value to the narrative and to the conversation around what we need to be doing in our society to help black males achieve and also celebrating the story of a black man who's out there helping all people achieve in this world. So I'm not going to belabor the point too much further. Let's get into part one. Yo, what's up, everybody out there? Welcome to uh, another episode of Bootstraps. Um, I want to introduce you all to uh, my big brother, literally and metaphorically. Um, yo, why don't you tell the people your name, man, and tell them uh, what you do. Uh, my name is Michael Essien. Uh, currently, uh, I'm a middle school principal, uh, middle school principal here in the uh, Bay Area. Um, I've been in public education now for what 28 years, uh, 21 of those years working in Oakland Unified School District as a teacher, uh, taught math, uh, algebra one, geometry, algebra two trig, special education, resource specialist, and special day class, and the last seven years as an administrator in San Francisco Unified School District. <laughs> okay, that's what's up. It seems like you've seen just about every side of public education. Uh, yes, public education. Uh, growing up, not only um, working in it, uh, being uh, in East Oakland and West Oakland, uh, and now working in the southeast section of San Francisco, but I'm also a K-12 LA Unified, Harbor City educated uh, student. So I've been in public education um, for all of my educational life, even got uh, two degrees from UC Berkeley. It's also public education. So I have a thorough uh, exposure to and participation in California's public schools. How, how would you evaluate California's public school, like holistically? Wow. Um, 
I would say that California public schools is lacking and the lacking um, the areas of concern that I would say are rooted in the funding, the resources. Uh, School sites are limited in terms of what they can do to try to reach the needs and meet the needs of the various students and families that they serve. And it becomes a situation where uh, sites are strapped to do particular things. And you now have to, uh, sites have to make decisions around competing interests. Uh, do I support a second language family uh, versus people getting f- the families eating food? Um, people have to uh, advocate pit African-American students against English language learners when it comes to resources and allocation uh, for time when it comes to professional development. And I think California public schools does not pro- provide enough resources for school sites to address the various needs of a diverse state. Um, When you start looking at the number of languages, the cultures that we have in the school sites, um, more resources are definitely needed so that we can produce a a learning environment that is generating kids who can compete in the 21st global economy, 21st century global economy. Yeah, yeah. it's it's interesting. You know, it's like no matter where you go, you know, because I chose to go down the business path, but everything is a competition of resources at the end of the day. Like that's like, that's like step one, no matter what it is you choose to do nonprofit, whether you want to do education, whether you want to go into business, it all starts with this competition for resources, which is where you then run into structural, you know, um, discrimination. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And what's interesting is the competition for resources, as I see it in, in California public schools, it's, it's a self-inflicted uh, wound or it's a choice that we are making here in the state of California. When you look at California's allocations per pupil expenditure is equivalent to the state of Arkansas. When you think about uh, the California economy being what the fifth largest in the world, uh, there's no way that resources uh, allocated for per pupil expenditure should be equivalent to uh, the state of Arkansas, or you look at a state of like New York, they uh, New Jersey, they spend almost twice as much um, per pupil when it comes to educating children. And I think for me, that is that is real challenging, especially with the various needs that our students and families have here in the state of California. Yeah, that's bananas too, because I, I remember reading once upon a time that when the California public school system was first designed and implemented, it, once upon a time, it was the best public school system in the world or one up like you can go from preschool through a terminal degree whether it was phd whether it was md whether it was mba whatever it may be jd all in the california public school system and the quality of education you would get from preschool through your terminal degree would be second to none right so like what what like when exactly did that start to change you have any line of sight to that well, I would think that some of those changes began when uh, Prop 13 was passed, which shifted the funding. Uh, at one point, California public schools had more resources than it has currently. I think that change, uh, when it lessened the amount of resources, hard dollars sent to the school sites, I think that impacted it. But I also think that the quality of education, I think maybe we would need to provide a lens for interpreting quality education. I think uh, how we viewed education then as opposed to now was less around meeting the the differentiated needs of the various populations we have or had at the time. 
<clears throat> now it's it's unacceptable to have um, English language learners separated from everybody else. Mm-hmm. And counting your numbers for graduation and going to college was something uh, totally acceptable back then, which may not have indicated what was happening with English language learners or children who had IEPs, um, who were separated out, had separate classes. Now we have this full inclusion uh, where you have these multiple uh, categories of students that have particular needs and they all have to be in the general education classroom. And so then there's a big shift on the demand of what a teacher needs as far as skills to successfully maneuver and instruct and build a learning environment um, that is conducive to the various kids in their classrooms. Right. When we when we moved to that and we did not support teacher development to deal with all of these things, I think <clears throat> that was a bigger hit to the quality of uh, instruction in California than the resources themselves. Wow. <clears throat> because now um, when you have a teacher sitting in the classroom of anywhere from 30 to 40 children, and you have kids reading on maybe eight different levels, kids speaking, might you might have like seven different languages in your classroom. You might have, um, I don't know, 10% of the kids in your classroom might have IEPs. The skill level that a teacher needs to successfully navigate teaching any content, math, science, LA, social studies, um, has magnified and I don't think our infrastructure to support teacher development, uh, credentialing, professional development, the curriculum that we have inside the classroom, the assessments don't fit the needs of the students and or the teachers in their professional development. I think those things have significantly undermined the quality education that, that California uh, can provide. And the thing is, uh, we say we were more successful than we did less uh, assessment. And I would ha- hate to to give credit to uh, George Bush, but his uh, No Child Left Behind, the one thing it did do was we got to assess kids and we found out that the quality of instruction um, for a variety of kids varied based upon these test scores. And so I think we, we got a more specific look at what's happening in, in California public schools and the story we used to paint could no longer be supported by the data right, that right, we were right. now discovering. Yeah, you know, it's like it's the classic. I, I use this at work all the time. Uh, you know, men lie, women lie, numbers don't lie. You know, when you really dig into the data and <clears throat> start to highlight the correlations that are there and talk about, like, these mm-hmm. are the plain implications of these facts. Um, I see that as a gift, right, if you're really trying to solve the problem. But if you're if you're not trying to solve certain problems, you know, having those problems brought to put them on front street, so to speak, uh, could be uh, inconvenient for certain folks. But, you know, I think it's better to know than not know. Oh, absolutely. But I'll tell you one of the things that uh, like this what data has produced, uh, data has produced this need or urgency for collaboration when uh, people were able to hide before previously what was happening. Uh, now that we know the, the demands of English language learners, children with IEPs, certain targeted populations, African-American students aren't uh, performing uh, well, Pacific Islanders. What begins to happen is these individual groups, they have different and unique needs. And 
now in order to engage them, you have to engage in conversation. Collaboration becomes important. And people who are not willing to engage in collaboration uh, produce problems. And so uh, what this testing has revealed is implicit bias. Mm -hmm. um, it revealed mindsets, right? Uh, it's it's revealed a skill versus will to address these particular issues. And I think the current situation in public education where people are wrestling or there are all kinds of books, the, the landscape is wide open uh, because there are people trying to make their way through this where you can create collaboration where the dominant paradigm, which was allowed to say uh, kids who are coming into school to be educated, that you need to be held accountable. You need to be held responsible. I think the conversation now is like, it's a little more complicated than that. And with these complications that we're talking about, um, how are we as a school going to address the implicit biases of the adults um, and trying to address the needs? Yeah. Because what we prioritize is based upon how we think. Yeah. 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 So a couple of things are like popping out right away. One is the way in which structural racism and implicit bias kind of shows up. Um, in the numbers. And then the other is to address it, it requires like a, a multicultural lens. Like as a, as a business person who like my, my career, I focus on marketing, but I always find it interesting whenever we get to talk, it's like the, I think marketing and education are like opposite ends of the spectrum, but they show they're, they're the two like bookends of our cultural um, spectrum that shows our implicit biases, right? So you look at whatever are the big mainstream kind of brands and paradigms and the way in which um, those brands show up in our society. And then you look at education, that being the catch-all of everything that happens in our society. So you, so from your end, you're talking about how, um, you know, African-Americans or Pacific Islanders or other outgroups for those English, English language learners how the education system is um, wasn't necessarily structured to serve them. You look at some of these old brands as we've moved into this age of information and you look at uh, how people are more connected than ever and how culture is a bit more fluid and it's not as isolated. There's more race mixing. There's more everything is that's driving more of a when people under 20 there. The mainstream culture is multicultural, you know? And, yes. Agreed. And Agreed. so you have yeah. these legacy brands that are, in this very interesting place where they, they've had these implicit biases against talking to these outgroups. And so their consumer base is aged and they're still doing well. But then when they look, they don't have, with younger consumers, they're not relevant and they're flat out failing. And what that means is within five to 10 years, you're going to be in real serious trouble if you don't change. And so it requires collaboration, which I think is a term and a theme you were getting at, but with that collaboration also requires um, a multicultural fluency and an openness to kind of indulge in multicultural fluency. Yeah. And so you, you think about the, what's, what's inferred or the implications of this, right? The collaboration and the multicultural fluency, fluency um, is we're talking about people needing to co-construct something that is beneficial to all those who participate um, I know the word that like code switching has been thrown out there, but, but uh, where kids who are uh, coming from a particular community uh, need to learn to speak 
in a way that's beneficial to the dominant paradigm. But co-constructing uh, is something a little more complex where you're creating an environment where it's beneficial to all students and it's also beneficial to the adults who are in that environment because everybody is walking into this environment with their own values and beliefs. And those values and beliefs play out in a certain way and they, and they skew the data. But if you can uh, bring all of these cultural values, multicultural lens to the table and then negotiate within the group to co-construct something that's gonna be beneficial to everyone, I think that's where um, we're moving towards and what we're working on in uh, public education here across the nation, but in particular in California where uh, we don't, we, we, unlike certain states, uh, we don't have homogenous groups, yeah. right? <laughs> we, we, we are very diverse in our schools. Right. I mean, I think, you know, end of the day, once it's figured out and, and people embrace it, you know, two minds are better than one, four better than two. Like it just, that co-construction and co-creation is just going to unleash kind of the best that exists across all these different cultures to make things a lot better. But one, one thing that I, I find interesting, like if, if, if someone's listening to, you know, this black man who from LA, Harbor City in particular, educated LA Unified, <laughs> right? Educated LA Unified, you know, you went, you went to Cal, you're a double bear, and you're now in public education, like as a, as a teacher and then as an administrator, let's, let's take a step back. Like how, like how did you come to be? Like this is the way in which you understand and think about education, um, is, is pretty intriguing. I want to understand like how did this happen? So we know that you're from LA, but can, can you walk us through like, what, what was your childhood like? What, what was your formative years like? Hmm. So um, I want to say I had a, a, everybody has a unique experience because you, it, it's your experience, et cetera. But I'm going to, I'm going to say that um, uh, there are some particular things uh, that are important about my uniqueness uh, in the experience. So my mom was a single parent. Uh, our mom was a single parent and we were raised in LA, but I'm the first thing born in, in California. All my relatives, if you're older than me and my family, you were born in Arkansas. So although we were uh, born and raised in LA, our household was Southern Baptist. So there's like, so those things are conflicting things. You got the streets of LA, but then you got the Southern Baptist culture inside the house, inside the house. Um, but now transitioning into uh, the school and my, my learning, right. With this, with this conflicting, with these conflicting uh, values, like the streets of LA versus the, uh, the Southern Baptist household um, inside of the, uh, LA public schools, uh, I, I had uh, a temper. Like I, I fought a lot. I did a lot of things, right? And there was a, just a lot of conflict. Um, but where we went to school in Harbor City, we were on the other side of the tracks. And so there was this isolation where I went to school with um, Latino people, uh, Samoan people. Like there weren't a lot of Caucasian or white students at my school site. So when you start talking about having that comparison about who's the smartest, uh, who are the best students, et cetera, it literally had to come from the collective group that we had. And these were people of color. And so uh, my primary education math was something I really excelled in. I don't care how crazy I was <laughs> getting 
to all kind of conflicts. Um, I just excelled at math. And so in my formative years, primary education uh, at Normont Elementary School, I was the top math student in the sixth grade. I was at Miss Descala's class going into junior high school. And so for me, I didn't have this identity that was wrapped around me being an inferior student. Right. Um, I had this identity where you can excel, you could be the top and smartness was not a bad thing. And so in that respect, I had a real strong formative education. And I think not being exposed to a, a paradigm that was considered better, and then you develop this inferiority complex about being a person of color, I didn't have that. And to this day, that still drives me where when I show up in spaces, I don't ever see myself as being less than or striving to some other standard. The standard is what I contain within me. Uh, it's, it's, it's okay to be me because that was validated in my primary upbringing that it was okay to be me. Right, right, right. Which, are, which some, some I find interesting. One of the, you know, and, and I, I don't know, I have a particular bias. One of the, I find to be lazy tropes that is pushed or at least has been pushed historically in mainstream media was if you were, if you grew up in the hood or neighborhoods like where we grew up, if you were smart, then you became isolated and ridiculed. But you're saying like that wasn't your experience. <laughs> Not even close. That wasn't even the experience. Those, those paradigms didn't exist for us. Like, I think those are things that there are some experiences that I began to have when I was in junior high school and, and I'll uh, lean into uh, one or two of those and high school that uh, maybe if I was in elementary school experiencing those things, then, then maybe that paradigm could be the case, but no. And when uh, I was coming up and doing, doing my stuff, like the people that I ran with, like we didn't see each other as different. It wasn't as if somebody was seen as smarter or whatever. We were just at school doing school. So um, the friends that I grew up with, uh, Philip, Tony, Packy, Nathaniel Black. Like, <clears throat> when we did our things, we just did our things. And it wasn't a matter of, oh, you're doing good in school, so then you're a sellout or whatever. Like, once school was over, we were in the streets doing what we were doing, playing basketball, racing up and down the streets. Street Kings, if people don't know about it, those are roller skates with steel wheels. <laughs> <laughs> just doing crazy stuff. Nobody was, nobody was buying into this thing that if you did well in school, then you were a sellout or you was, I think these are things that are later developments um, uh, that are problematic within public schools now. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a fair point. Now. So when you go back to like, so you're, you're in Harbor city growing up, you're going to school, doing your thing, you're getting out, you're hanging out with Tony, Philip, Packy, the, the, the whole nine. And that, that is one culture and you are, you know, the first born in a family in California, right? So you're kind of getting that experience and living, you know, that experience, but then you come home and what is it, what is it like coming home? Like was, were, were there things that you were learning, whether it be in school or that you were learning experiences hanging out on the streets with your homeboys that when you came in the house created some tensions? <laughs> you talking about tensions while I was still in the K-12 learning and coming home? Yeah. Shoot. Man, the Southern Baptist thing ruled. Um, so 
like being on the streets, uh, LA coming up, you just have to, you have to defend. It was everybody for themselves. You have to defend yourself. You have to be able to, uh, not back down, et cetera. And I, and I think there were some benefits to that, but there's also some benefits to having, uh, friends and cousins that, um, established themselves as well. Like, so as I was developing things out, uh, and being able to fight and do things out and throughout the streets of Harvard city or whatever, coming home, when I say we were Southern Baptist, um, the things that were occurring in the streets could not occur in the household. Uh, I remember seeing some of my friends, uh, I, I will change. I will not use the names of the guilty. Um, <laughs> like they could come home and, and sometimes they would talk to their parents in a different, like, like speak back to their parents, et cetera. Like mm, that was not happening in our household. So no matter what I was doing out on the streets, um, right. walking back into the household, uh, I couldn't talk back to my mom. And I do remember, and I'm sure, well, you and you and Anthony, Anthony's the middle brother always bring this up. I remember the one time I did try to uh, exert my will as a sixth grader. It's a legendary um, story. <laughs> I got to interject for a second. I'm not going to tell any of the story. For those of you who are listening, this is, you know, those stories that come up like every year at the holidays. And even though, you know, everyone in the room has already heard the story is going to get told again. And everyone is genuinely going to laugh sometimes so hard. They start crying. This is one of those stories. Please proceed. All right. First of all, I want to say I love my mom, uh, <laughs> Tenny Abington, rest in peace. Uh, original oh, gangster. So uh, it's the sixth grade and it's time to get dressed. And uh, we hadn't had an opportunity to do washing, um, to go wash clothes. And so all of my clothes were dirty. And my mom came into the room and she told me to put on, the, just wear these tough skins. Uh, tough skins are some real rugged jeans with, for kids who do a lot of playing. They got the patches in the knees so that uh, you don't wear the knee out so that the jeans don't get a hole in it. And for me, uh, in my own social development, in my mind's eye, I had grown beyond tough skins. And so uh, I told my mom I wasn't going to wear the tough skins. So my mom said, boy, put the tough skins on. And she left, continued to get dressed because we have to get out in the morning. Uh, she'd come back by the room. And she saw that I, I hadn't put the tough skins on. And she said, boy, I told you to put those tough skins on. So I didn't, you know, I didn't say anything. I got quiet. She left again. She's still continuing to get dressed because we're going to leave. We're all going to leave the house again. She had come back to the room uh, the third time. And I hadn't put, put the tough skins on. And she said, boy, put those pants on like I told you. And this was the first time uh, I felt compelled to speak an authoritative <laughs> voice. Uh, and I said, no, mom, I'm not wearing the tough skins. After that, I don't know. I can't explain the movement. I don't know how my mom covered the distance that she did, but she did cover the distance. And then somehow I was grabbed by my neck and thrown to the ground. Uh, when I hit the floor, now we have a rug in the apartment. Um, uh, and then there's a bed that you are sleeping in. This is your bed. Um, uh, my head skipped on the rug, got a little rug burn and went under the bottom of the bed and my head got stuck under the bed. <laughs> you were moving with velocity. 
So uh, in order for me to get my head out, uh, the bed had to be little, lifted a little so I can pull my head out. And needless to say, uh, I put the tough skins on and I went to the right. pool. Uh, I never challenged my mom again. And uh, that was the end of that story. And that was in the sixth grade. So thinking about what was happening in the streets, fighting, running around, playing sports and doing all these types of things and seeing how my friends, some of them could go back into the house and, and speak differently. That was not the case in our household. And God forbid, <laughs> if my uncles had found out um, if it had gone any further, it would have been even more trouble. So right. I have to, I, I literally learned code switching before the book came out by Lisa Delpit dealing with code switching and identifying it. Uh, I had to learn to code switch immediately for survival purposes. <laughs> like literal, yeah, survival purposes. But you know, there's a certain there's a certain harsh for those of you who grew up in Southern Baptist culture, um, which has a high correlation with what folks think of as black culture in the United States, um, that story may not be that shocking. I'm sure, you know, about you know, 15 seconds into the story, people kind of started to guess how that was gonna end up. But other people who did not grow up in the Southern Baptist culture, they're like, oh my gosh, that sounds so violent and aggressive and whatever. Like, why do you think, you know, mama who, you know, we, we all known to be this very sweet and loving, compassionate woman. And the three of us, you know, we have a different perspective of our mother, understanding that she's a sweet, loving woman, but she showed a different side. She was very firm with us when we were doing what we weren't supposed to do. Like, why is it in Southern Baptist culture that parents and when there is no dad around, mothers, just anyone who's an authority figure in the family in Southern Baptist culture, why is it, why are they so motivated to set those firm rules and provide really harsh consequences for these kids that they love? Yeah, that's a, I think that's a really good question. And so my response, uh, my analysis of that question, breaking it down, is not a sweeping general Southern Baptist. I think I'm saying the Southern Baptist, like you might have grown up in a particular environment being a Southern Baptist, but then the specific experience of our uh, mom. So thinking about the Southern Baptist general culture growing up in Arkansas in the sticks. Now, the sticks is a little different. There's city, there's rural and then once you get off the paved streets and dirt roads, there's the sticks. So um, our mom grew up in the sticks and in Arkansas in a Southern Baptist uh, environment. So when you look at the fact that they were sharecroppers, uh, they literally picked cotton. Um, my grandmother had a seventh grade education. There were real consequences for behaviors uh, in, in Arkansas. And so I think being able to uh, so follow the rules became important. So uh, I remember my mom sharing stories around how when she was around six years of age, right, she became responsible for her brothers, like taking care of her brothers because grandma was out working, et cetera. So when it comes to following rules, when it comes to following orders, they could violating a rule or violating an order could be life-threatening, especially for people that young. If you're like a six-year-old and responsible for taking care of your brothers and sisters. <clears throat> so I think you layer in the, the Southern Baptist culture plus the experience. Not all Southern Baptist people are at the age of six have to take care of their brothers and sisters because their mom is out 
uh, picking cotton or doing a variety of, of, of other things. So I, I think there's becomes this uniqueness around what our mom experienced growing up. Right. And so thinking about how they even came to California um, or as sharecroppers, um, they got at least uh, an advance warning uh, that they were going to go to a mechanical uh, cotton picker. So then the uh, financial opportunities, the employment opportunities were significantly going to change and they needed to move to California to uh, have different opportunities. And so I want to thank Uncle Swayze, uh, who uh, big up uh, Uncle Swayze, who who was trying to move out here, who moved out to California um, and uh, our uh, aunt, Aunt Duke, um, who August was married to, Aunt Duke was the sister of our grandmother. In order for uh, him to convince his wife, Aunt Duke, to move out here, he knew that uh, my grandmother would have to move out here as well. So he made that happen. So you figure they now they move from Arkansas out to California, and they're talking about different opportunities. My mom was still driven by, or our mom was still driven by, you need to follow rules and orders because she was working two jobs and I had taken on that role where I had to take care of my brothers, uh, you and Anthony and following orders became, um, following rules became something that was real, especially in LA. And you're going to get that education because for them, uh, in particular, my mom, uh, she felt that education was the way to transform economic outcomes for us in the future. So she didn't play, right. she didn't play around that. So that's what I think. So right. the Southern Baptist around following spirit, Southern Baptist really boils down to spare the rod, spoil the child. <laughs> um, that's what people say. Right. They, they, <laughs> they believe in corporal punishment, but it's what yeah. my mom is, what our mom chose to emphasize with the punishment that I think was right. beneficial to us. Why? Uh, as soon as Anthony, I think, uh, so there's three brothers. There's, uh, I'm the oldest, Michael, Anthony's the middle brother and Anefri's the youngest. Um, Anthony will get his master's degree in the fall. And then all of my mom's boys will have uh, master's degrees, which I think is a unique thing for three black boys being raised up with a single mom uh, growing up in LA now. But I also want to qualify single mom. We had extended family. So I think right. like my mom was out there by herself, but she was not in a relationship where some, there was another person in the house, but my grandmother, my uncles, like, and my aunts, they were all part of helping uh, raise us. Right. Which, yeah, I mean, the, in the, the, that's where really that part of your story is where really the name for the show Bootstraps comes from, right? Because I think there's this interesting piece where Black people who grew up how we've grown up, you know, born in a place where very limited resources, very violent neighborhood, you have to fend for yourself, can't ever back down. If you do, you know, there's, that creates more consequences for you, et cetera. If you do somehow make it from there, there's this particular perspective of, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, I made it by myself. And I think that that's also a lazy trope, but it's a disrespectful trope. Agreed. No one in our family had gone on and gotten the education we had gotten but they invested in us. Agreed. Like we weren't by ourselves. We had this big extended family. You know, um, and so uh, the, the, the big, not only are we talking about um, our own family, like our uncles and aunts, et cetera. I think my mom um, was a rare person in terms of her kindness and giving 
uh, not only what she did in the church, uh, but what she did in the community. And she ran with a giant too, um, the late Mrs. Phillips. Um, may she also rest in peace. And, and thinking about um, the things that they provided, the things that they um, placed in our environment to help life be a little different um, for the students or for the kids and the families that were coming up in Harvard City. Uh, talking about like uh, supporting kids getting into like the teen post and volunteering at the parent child center um, uh, down in the Harbor city projects, uh, getting Kaiser hospital moved to Harbor city. Uh, Ms. Phillips was amazing at doing that, uh, creating the Harbor city picnic, uh, trying to find jobs for people. Like, these are the things that uh, my mom did and we got to tag along and see all of these things. And so when uh, you begin to think about the whole Southern Baptist, the whole thing being raised up, et cetera, there were so many moving pieces, but inside of all of that, we're talking about rules, procedures, follow through, and then you need to be caring and give back to your community. And I think some of those things are what drives me today because I didn't realize growing up in our family, uh, growing up in Harbor City, not just in our family, I didn't realize how poor we were uh, until I went away to college and just like, <laughs> like little things. Um, like if I wanted to go to a football game, uh, and like, I'm talking about go to a professional football game, like, wow, these tickets are expensive. Or if I want to go to a baseball game, like, wow, these tickets are expensive. Uh, being able to, as a person who's coming up, the connections that my mom had established, like she and Ms. Phillips, uh, Ms. Phillips' son was a was a starting linebacker uh, for the San Diego Chargers, so I used to go to Charger games for free and even got to go into the locker room. My best friend's father uh, used to be roommates with Dusty Baker, so we used to go to baseball games. And so I didn't, I, I didn't know the cost associated with these things, right? This was just something that, that, that we experienced. And so thinking about the differences, like – like sometimes I have to try to explain like, oh, how do I see, how do I explain where I am today, knowing that I'm no different than all of my friends that I grew up with. We were just, we were all raised up the same. I, I don't consider myself any smarter than any of my friends. Uh, all the people I ran with, they were smart individuals. But then you start looking at these different experiences that prevented uh, me from maybe traveling down a particular path. Um yeah. So these type of thing. And then that's to the hard work and dedication of my mom and the network that she established um, in supporting people and the extended family. Yeah, no, that's that's real. And so you come out. So you come through kind of this development through sixth grade in, you know, on the other side of the tracks in Harbor City, the, the way which you put it, which I think is a very accurate description. And there, there are a few themes, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but a few things that I've heard come through is there's some natural ability, you know, academically, there is uh, a sense of responsibility and the seriousness that was reinforced by the way in which um, you were being raised. But then there also, there was, there was some agency, right? Like watching what mama and Mrs. Phillips did, like you, you learned like, yo, I, can, I am required and I am capable to go out and kind of make these things kind of happen in my life if I want them to happen. So as you, if, well, before I move on, like, would you, would you say that, th that that would be an accurate synopsis of 
your elementary school years? Yeah, I would, I would say the all that you said. But the, the other thing that um, I'm completely aware of as I move through this space and I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like thinking about how kids are experiencing school now uh, as a principal and, and seeing how some kids don't have the similar agency that I, I might have had. I think about all of the adults in my life that um, I consider that had my back and that were caring. So it's not just my uh, family members. And you start talking about like Miss Phillips. Um, there's Miss Marshall, um, right. Miss, my best friend, um, Philip, uh, his mother, like she was a stalwart in the community. There was Miss Tucker who lived next door to like these individuals had uh investments in us being appropriate. And so um, you have, you knew that people had your back. So when, even if I was caught up in something, uh, I didn't have to have my mom be the individual to defend me. If any of these individuals were in earshot or within uh, proximity for anything, I knew that these individuals uh, had my back. And I think yeah. as any, any kid coming up, knowing that you have people that support you, knowing that you have individuals that regardless if you mess up, they can acknowledge your mistake or misstep, and but they still support you. I think that is the one thing that might've been missing from all the stuff that I was sharing is that I knew I had people that cared for me. I knew I had people that loved me. Yeah. And you know, we're not going to go deep into it, but for those of you listening, you know, that's called secure attachment. And if you want to understand kind of, how that can enable one's life. Um, look up secure attachment um, and, and, and all that comes with that because it's definitely a, a great asset to have in your back pocket. So now you you kind of leave the the confines and the bubble of our very like like our neighborhood was black brown Pacific Islander um, kind of on this side of the tracks where we live and then through junior high and high school, you know it opens up and becomes a bit more multicultural. You know, it's, there's the people from our side of the tracks and there's a few other neighborhoods as well that kind of gets interlaced into that. So as you continue on, in particular on your educational journey, right, as you try and continue to move forward with this charge that you've been given from mama to go out and get a great education, um, what is that like once you're now amongst different people? So uh, I'll, I'll briefly touch on uh, junior high school. So now, mind you, the, the, the backdrop of the context is I'm leaving uh, Normont, Normont Elementary School as the number one math student, top math student in Mr. Scholar's classroom going into uh, Fleming Junior High School. And I didn't think anything of it. You know, I just, you know, you enroll in classes. So I'm sitting in math class. I have a math seven class. I didn't think anything about it. But then... When we're uh, out at like uh, lunchtime and recess, then hearing people that like in pre-algebra classes, I was like, okay, I didn't, okay, whatever. Like, still didn't think anything about it. And then <clears throat> you fast forward the following year, I'm in math eight, and which is another basic math class, and people are now in algebra classes, and so then now I became aware of like, well, wait a minute. If I was doing well in math, why am I in math eight? How come I'm not taking algebra? I can do this stuff that other kids are doing. And I, I started getting into arguments with my math teacher. Um, 
I had my mom come in and I was explaining to her, man, they got me. I got they, these other kids are in algebra, like kids that I was, I was ahead of previously. And now I'm behind them. I was like, this is, there's something wrong. And so, um, I became aware of tracking, but I came aware of tracking, not from a theoretical perspective, but from something that was actually happening to me. Um, right. and the fact that I had the security of coming up in that bubble region, the other side of the tracks where I didn't have this inferior complex around my learning. Like I was angry that I was not in the higher math classes and I need to be in those higher math classes. Right. That was the beginning yep. of me being made aware of that. There are some things happening in school that may not be to the benefit of me. And so, uh, right. I became frustrated. And so then that set me back in math. And I, and I wasn't even thinking in terms of, I'm not trying to tell you like in the seventh and eighth grade, I was thinking about, Oh, I want to graduate from high school with uh, two years of calculus. I just felt that it was, there was an injustice. The fact that I was placed in uh, lower math classes than people that I had, uh, I was doing more advanced work. So you fast forward. Yeah. Um, I get into Narbonne, we get to Narbonne high school and now I'm becoming aware that when I graduate, I want to go to college. And so I'm thinking about, I'm not even going to finish with calculus. I became very agitated thinking back on the seventh and eighth grade when I was placed in those basic math classes, which prevented my trajectory for high school. And so, but that was a retrospective. Now, my mom, uh, she couldn't understand that in terms of she just wanted to make sure that we did school well. She did not have the understanding of the consequences of having somebody, uh, having her son, Michael, placed in uh, seventh and eighth grade basic math. Um, but now right. there are consequences for maybe even SAT scores and potential schools that you can get into. And so um, I remember I decided in the uh, 11th grade, that I was going to take uh, an additional math class at Harbor College. And my boy, Philip, signed up. So um, Philip and I signed up to take Algebra 2 at Harbor College in the summer of our, uh, matter of fact, I think it was the summer of our 11th grade year. So we can advance forward. Now, can you imagine, now, now this, uh, we're talking about two black boys running around Harbor City, doing right. all those kind of things. And then that was the decision. Like my mom didn't make me go to school. That was literally like, man, I need to advance my mathematics. And so I made that decision and Philip decided to roll with me. And so when you start thinking about the type of agency, like that's the type of agency. It was agency around the things that we loved and what we loved. It didn't make a difference. It was in education. If it was in sports, uh, whether it's basketball, football, baseball, um, we were encouraged to explore those things and support it around that. So I ended up doing that, and which I still didn't get a chance to graduate with calculus. Um, but I did finish with, uh, trigonometry pre-calculus, um, which was benefit, but I could only have gotten to that. Uh, I couldn't have gotten to that if I didn't take algebra two in the summer at, at Harvard college, yeah. which then led me to getting into Cal. I got accepted into UC Berkeley. And then there were some grumblings at Narbonne high school around me getting into Berkeley. Um, I remember my computer science programming teacher. Um, he had come up to me and he said, oh, I heard you got in the cow. I was like, oh, yes. And I'm sitting here. I'm doing my, uh, uh, what was it, uh, Fortran programming. And he decided to share right. a story with me that, oh, I had a, a student that was in my computer programming class over at Carson High School. 
she got in the cow and she flunked out. I was like, huh? Like, why is this guy telling me this story? Like, what does it have to do with me? Right. But I knew that he was telling me like, what is she like, man, wait a minute. This comparative thing. I've always been able to understand when somebody's talking to me, what they're trying to say. Right. And so I got, I got pissed. Right. But it's like, whatever, like let it go. Another instance, I'm walking on the campus and a, and a math teacher that I never had walked up to me and said, it was just out of the blue, told me it was unfair that I got accepted into Cal that one of her students should have gotten in over me. And right. And, and, and yeah, also, ahead, so these are, these are the experiences. Now, now when you start talking about my formative years, my formative years are what's driving my response to some of these other things. Like if I didn't have that great experience in primary education around uh, you're, it's okay to be who you are and you can thrive and you can be uh, do well in school that shaped how I was perceiving things happening to me, but they it shaped my perception in a way that made me push back against, or as opposed to accept what was happening to me. Yep. And I think that that's, that's the point where I was going to like interject and just make a point to anyone who's listening to this right now, in particular, black men who are either young black boys or you're young in your career when you recognize these injustices, you can't buckle, right? Because the same way in which your academic and like math trajectory was altered, they do the same thing when you're early on in your career from an earning standpoint where you're slower to get promoted or even when you get the promotion, they don't bump you up to the full salary range that's appropriate for your title. And what that does over time is it suppresses your lifetime learning or your lifetime earnings. Same thing with you, what they did to you in seventh, eighth grade, it made it difficult for you to uh, be on the math trajectory you needed to be to attend at UC Berkeley. You and Philip did some things to catch you up and get you above that watermark to where you can apply and get in. And then once you got in, people who you weren't really dealing with came back and had comments and opinions about it because they were walking around just seeing you in a particular way without knowing you. That's the type of stuff that gets all black people upset. But what bothers me in particular, it feels like black men disproportionately get so frustrated and upset, they can say F it and they opt out. And I see that is not an option. You need to always figure out like, how am I going to overcome and battle? Like not that you need to tuck your tail and be discouraged. Um, but I think quitting is just as bad as selling out. Like you need to figure out a way to continue to exercise agency in some way. Yeah, you know I, what I mean? matter of fact, I, I, I do. And, and, I, and I'm gonna go back to uh, something that um, mama um, drilled in us. I remember when I, I first got to uh, Fleming and I remember uh, I had a teacher, a, a Spanish teacher and I knew the Spanish teacher didn't like me. And so I come home and so thinking, I don't want to get in trouble. Like the dude going to write referrals. Cause you know, I didn't back down to anybody. I talked back to teachers and all this. If you disrespected me, the disrespect was coming back or whatever, that kind of thing. Right. And so I felt that this was going to lead to me getting into some serious trouble. Um, so I had to come home and I told my mom, I told mama, I was like, mama, uh, the Spanish teacher doesn't like me. And, and, and I think I'm going to have some problems. And this is what she told me. She said, my job 
was to make sure the school doesn't call me. I was like, well, mama, the Spanish teacher doesn't like me. He says, you better figure it out because your job is to make sure that school doesn't call me. And I was like, what? So I got to go problem solve. I got to. <laughs> right. You, you, you remember the tough skins. You're like, I better find a solution. So that meant um, I had to figure out I could do it any way I wanted to, but the school should not call me. That was my responsibility. She did have one other rule. I couldn't, you got it too. Uh, couldn't have, we couldn't come home with anything less than a B. Right. And so then you just have to go yeah. figure out stuff. So if I'm at the school site and this teacher's yeah. a problem, I can't skip the class because if I skip the class, my mom's going to get notified. I'm not in class. If I get a bad grade, I'm going to get in trouble like this teacher. So then I had to learn how to navigate relationships. I had to learn how to bite my tongue at times. But the one thing that was not an option was to quit because there were consequences if I quit and quitting at that and the quitting at that age in junior high school is skipping class, ditching school, getting F's, all that kind of stuff. That, that was not an option for me. Right. So, so you look at, you know, that's, that's a lot of pressure, you know, pressure bursts pipes, but also it, it forges diamonds, yeah. right? So as you come through those 18 years of, you know, your formative years, or really you, you graduated and, and left home just before you turned 18. So you're still 17, 17 yeah. and a yeah. half or so. So you, you come through those years though. Um, and, you know, first person born in our family in California, in Harbor City, and then you leave, you leave South LA and you come up to UC Berkeley. What was that like? That had to be a culture shock for a black male with your upbringing. Yeah, I want to say it, it was definitely a culture shock. Um, I'm just going to say growing up in Harbor City, uh, you, I had not seen a Hare Krishna like when people talk about the culture of the Hare Krishnas, I hadn't seen people protest up close and personal. This was something that was on the UC Berkeley campus. And we also, there was a, there was something happening at the school where people were, there were nudists who were students. So they were going to school completely naked with backpacks on and just like Birkenstocks. <laughs> So that you know, growing up, we didn't see that. That just right, that just didn't happen uh, in Harbor City. Um, add to that, so there's that culture shock. Shock. Add to that, um, for the first time, like nobody's taking attendance. Nobody's concerned about whether you get up on time. Nobody's concerned about whether you're making it to that class. Like you have to do that on your own. <clears throat> So when you start thinking about the culture shock, there's the culture shock of the things that you're seeing, but now there's the culture shock of decision-making too. Um, the alarm clock has to be set by me. Um, the schedule has to be set by me. The management of your time to do studying, uh, that was kind of set in school, in high school, because we didn't have prep periods. Like uh, school went the entire day, and then when you went home, you know you had this small window of time to study. But now you're at a university, I might have two classes on a Monday that might be from eight to nine. And I got another class that might be from one to two. All that other time is free. How do you begin to manage your time? That too is a culture shock. 
managing your finances. You get your financial aid and you put it in your bank account. And then how do you set a budget? These are all things that were completely foreign to me. And now you're responsible for doing it. These are the things that were uh, significant culture shocks. And you have to learn uh, how to adjust on the fly from mistakes, which could have been devastating to you. Um, but I do believe, once again, being able to navigate and finding out the networks, the people, the supports in your system uh, allowed, me, allowed me to deal with uh, things where I messed up. I was able to lean in on uh, the networks and support systems until I was able to figure out, like, oh, this is how you manage and navigate time management, your finances, et cetera. Um, but I right. do think the right. the part, me figuring it out, <laughs> goes back to that problem solving or uh, where my mom said or our mom said, just don't have the school call us. You need to figure it out. Right, right. Yeah, like there, there, there are, there are, there are benefits to um, to providing consequences, right, in, in the educational or in the formative years of, of a person, um, because then from that you you learn. Um, now there, it can be debated what the consequences <laughs> should be. Should it should it be jujitsu slams? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I know exactly what I'm talking about. So yeah, um, so so that's it. So you're one of the the most prestigious universities in the entire planet. It continues to be ranked as the best public school uh, in the world, even though I think there's some debate. I personally would say Michigan, but oh, that's, that's, the Berkeley, there. that's the Berkeley of um, Michigan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> stop it. Stop it, B. So you're in this, you're in this environment, um, you know, get this education. What, what would you say, like going through the formative years of having your undergrad experience being in such a prestigious place um what did uc berkeley do to your thing wow so th like uc berkeley has been i would say one of the greatest things experiences in my life i would never change if i could go back and change like i could change multiple things in my life i would never change for any reason my experience at UC Berkeley. Uh, I would always end up doing my undergrad and graduate work at uh, UC Berkeley. Um, what UC Berkeley uh, did for me, when you start talking about problem solving, uh, UC Berkeley uh, undergrad, it's a, it's a research institution. That's what it does. And so you have to, uh, when I come into UC Berkeley, I had to uh, participate in classes um, where people were asking me to do original things. Like we had to come up with original ways of thinking and interpreting, uh, responding to books and data. And so there are some things that you needed to do in order to um, be successful in your essays and your presentations, the debates that we actually have within classes. Um, you need to be able to collect primary resources. You need to be able to analyze primary resources you need to be able to identify claims and then uh, use using evidence, finding evidence to support the claim. But the biggest piece is then your reasoning, wrapping all of that, tying it all together. UC Berkeley taught us to do that. And so coming out of any situation, like one of the one of the biggest problems, I still have it today, uh, is when a problem is presented to me, um, like 
I guess other people uh, would call it like I'm, I'm maybe too complex in my thoughts, but I don't ever see anything as simple. Um, like, oh, well, this is complex. And oh, well, this factors in. Was that, so what is really impacting? So I think being able to uh, look at data and analyze and come up with uh, possible solutions, multiple solutions uh, for probable causes uh, or correlations to something that is occurring is what UC Berkeley taught me. And, and I've been able to take that with me wherever I go uh, in life, but it's also has side effects. Um, so a little side story real quick with my wife, um, whenever we get into these discussions uh, in family settings or whatever, whatever, she told me one time, like you always state things as, as if your opinion is fact. And I was like, Oh, it's interesting. Like, you see Berkeley <laughs> because when you have to, when you literally, <laughs> when you have to analyze stuff and then you put your reason, your reasoning is not a, question for people your reasoning is the assertion of your conclusion based upon your data collection your claim and your evidence right and so that's that's how i've been right. trained and so yeah. I, I move and i operate like that always even in my professional life right now uh so and that can cause some stress in your personal life especially when you're dealing with your wife who also went to uc Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. She always got the ace of spades for the big jumper. She, she, she ready to cut anything you talk. Yo, this is where we're gonna take a break and end part one. But I strongly encourage you to hop on over and give a listen to part two because the conversation keeps going.